Last week I talked about Jehoshaphat and these two different stories in Scripture where you see Jehoshaphat in um, very intense situations, desperate situations where there's armies and battle that uh, the odds are stacked against him. And in both of those scenarios, you see he seeks the Lord, but then there's also this, this, uh, the harp that's included with one of them where they play the harp and the word of the Lord comes and they win the victory. And then the other one is where Jehoshaphat puts singers at the front of the army, singers in front of generals, and uh, they win the battle. The Lord actually sets ambushes against the other enemy, against uh, the, the Moabite armies, um, because of the singing of the people of God. And so I just, the point that I want to make today, sort of like the thesis of my message is this, that when God's people sing, God's heart moves and his hands act. And so all of us as believers, we are all God's people. And what we see throughout scripture time and time and time and time again is this powerful movement of God when his people worship him rightly. And there's many ways that we worship him, but there is one way that, that shows up over and over and over again, and it's singing. For some reason, God likes music. I mean, he created it. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings and dances over us, so he himself is a singer, and he calls us to do the same thing. And so hopefully I can kind of scratch the surface on this a little bit of just the importance and just the, the, how profound it is in Scripture, this whole thing of singing and worship. Um, and and there is, there's a lot at stake here. You know, singing is not just sort of this supplementary thing for the Christian life. It, it really is something that ought to be central for every believer. And, um, and there's a lot, again, there's a lot at stake. What we see happening throughout Scripture when people are singing to the Lord is we see, like in Jehoshaphat's scenario, we see armies routed and victories won. Um, we see prison doors open. We see deliverance happening when people sing, and we're going to walk through some of these stories. And so those are the victories that we see, but what would have happened had those people of God not worshipped and not sang? You would have had armies overtake them, prison doors stay closed, people not get delivered. And so there's a lot at stake here. We live in a world that is lost in darkness under the sway of the evil one. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, that, that the devil is the ruler of the air right now. He is, he is under God's sovereign control, but he is currently deceiving the nations. And there are days ahead of us where there is going to be deception that the earth has never seen. And so we need answers for that deception and it's really profound how much singing shows up in worshiping the Lord. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to explain what I mean by singing. It's more than just, you know, singing melodies. Um, there's more to it than that. But it, it really is a tool, a weapon that the Lord has given the people of God to wield in order for us to, like Jehoshaphat, walk away with victory and see darkness uh, put, put at bay. And so this is our identity. You know, we see this throughout Scripture, but really it comes to this pinnacle in the book of Revelation that, that the church, before this is all said and done, leading up to the days of the Lord's return, the church will be a singing bride. We will sing. And it just, it's a, the songs that explode out of Revelation are, are profound. 
And so in scripture, we find the song of Moses, the song of Miriam, the song of Hannah, the song of Solomon, the Psalms, the book of Revelation. We see moments, we see Jesus singing a hymn, we see Paul singing, and it shows up all through scripture. And so why do we sing? There's many reasons. I think, you know, one sort of foundational answer would simply be because when we sing, it gives glory, honor, and praise to God in ways that surpass the spoken word. It gets into the emotion. You know, um, our hearts connect so much more when we sing. Our, 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 you know, when we dance and we sing, we're, we're engaging more of our body than just when we talk, you know? So there's something deeper. You know, it's like when, when you see a, a, a young man get down on his knees and sing a love song to his bride, there's something more to it than just him standing there and saying it with words. It's like, I wrote a song for you. There's like a greater depth of glory and beauty in that. And so that's why we sing. And one could probably make the argument that music was invented for worship. Um, you know, you could even just say that potentially the whole intention of music and its existence when God decided in creation to make humans to have the ability to play music and to sing was for this end, for us to sing to him, make music to him and for him. <clears throat> and so let's, let's look um, through some of these stories. And there's lots of stories, so we're just going to touch on some of them today. But of course, we'll start with David. David would be, you know, the psalmist in scripture. I don't know how many psalms he wrote. There's 150. He wrote many of them. But you could even say that the Psalms exist because of David, because he's the one who set up singers night and day around the presence of God. And that's where all those Psalms, most of them, came from. But David, how he started, he's a young shepherd. You know, he's sort of on the back hills of uh, Judea or Jerusalem. And, and you sort of picture him with a harp watching over the sheep and before anything happens, before he's anointed king, before uh, he gets, you know, sort of brought out into the spotlight, he is a worshiper of God. He is singing to the Lord in the secret place as he's watching over the shepherds or watching over the, the flocks as a shepherd. And so um, this one story shows up in 1 Samuel 16. I'm sure probably most of you have heard it, but it's just worth noting again. Nothing really should get old to us in Scripture especially if it's not something that is like happening with us currently. You know, I want this story for myself. And so 1 Samuel 16, we see Saul has fallen away basically from grace. You know, he has sort of crossed the line once and for all, and the Lord has departed from him, and he sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. And so 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 16 says... Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. I won't even touch that. That's a mystery in and of itself right there, that the Lord sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. But Saul's attendants are with him. They said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. 
And so they go find David, and they sort of give this description of David, and they say he's skillful, he's a good-looking dude, but those two things aren't really the things that matter. It's the third one, which they say the Lord is with him. And so that's kind of the first point I want to make about singing, that just singing melody isn't the thing that moves darkness and brings the kingdom of light. It's when people who have the Lord dwelling in them sing, things happen, okay? And so David was a man, it says here, the Lord was with him. The Lord is with him. Yahweh is with David. And so verse 23 says, whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play and relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And I want that. I want when I play the guitar, I want to see people get set free from from demons and tormenting things and depression and addiction and all that kind of stuff. And this is what we've got to get. You know, David was a man after God's heart. He was a worshiper, but he was human. And like James says about Elijah, it's, it's the same thing with David. David is a man just like you and I, just like you and me. He is, he is not some special superhero. He is a human being that's just as weak and, and desperate as you and I are. And yet he touched something in the heart of God that, that hosted the presence of God. The Lord was with him. And as a worshiper, as a man after God's heart, when he played the harp, deliverance would happen. And so we too, we, can, we have access to this. And you might even argue that we have more access to this because we're in the new covenant. This is, we're after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and has sent his spirit to live inside of us. You know, it's, 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 it doesn't seem that David had that level. I mean, the Lord's with him, but, but we have the new covenant. And so we've, so I want to stir us tonight just for that. We can play instruments. We can sing. And some of you might go, well, I'm not a musician. I go, well, it doesn't take, it, it doesn't take too much time. Invest a little bit of time, pick up an instrument. And even if it's just for you in the secret place to strum a couple chords, it's worth it because of how much it shows up in scripture. But if you don't want to pick up an instrument, singing, all of us have voices. I'm sure everyone in this room has sung at some point or another. You don't have to sing on the stage to do what, what we are about to see happens when people sing. You can sing in your home. You can sing in your secret place. You can sing in your car on the way to, to work. But this thing that happens when David plays the harp, it's, it's available for us too. And it happens too. Like we don't get it that while joy is playing, there are things shifting in the spiritual atmosphere around us. And just David was able to like sort of see a more tangible manifestation of it as Saul got delivered. So David was a worshiper. He was a man after God's heart. He played the harp and demons had to leave the room when he played the harp. Okay, but what else did David do? I already mentioned it. But David, he set up night and day worship. And so this is really profound because David, he's a king. And one of the very first things he does as a king is he gets the Ark of the Covenant, brings it back into Jerusalem, and he sets up singers around it. 4,000 singers and musicians that ceaselessly worshipped in the presence of God around the Ark. And it just, you know, it seems like kings could maybe have a lot more important things to do then worry about some singers and musicians playing music in this little tent. But David understood something greater. He saw something more. What's, what's interesting, though, is under the old covenant, and I actually didn't really, this didn't click for me until just like recently, is under the old covenant, 
you could not be a king and a priest. And you see like Saul, when, when he sort of uh, crosses the line once and for all, it's, it's because he actually is impatient, Samuel's not there, and he does the priestly duty, and he ends up getting rebuked intensely for that, and the Lord pulls back from him. You have another story of, I think it's Uzziah, who is a king who also did the same thing. He sort of burnt incense when he wasn't supposed to, and the Lord judged him. And so it wasn't under the old covenant. You could not be a king and a priest. And yet David sort of finds this loophole to do this priestly duty of worship, which is really kind of more like the new covenant priesthood. Our new covenant priesthood, we don't burn incense. We don't sacrifice animals. Our sacrifices are, you know, a, a, a broken and contrite heart, which David was in touch with. Our sacrifices are, you know, offering ourselves on behalf of the gospel and Jesus. And, and, ultim- and, well, and then part of that is singing and offering worship. And so David, he's just interesting because he's motivated by love and he finds a loophole in the law by it. And he, as a king, sort of sets up this new covenant priesthood almost around the, um, around the ark. And, and why do I say that that's a new covenant? Well, because in Acts 15, um, the, Paul and Barnabas and Peter, they're all there and they're sharing testimonies about how the Gentiles are coming in. And James stands up and he goes, hey, this, this thing that you're seeing, the Gentiles come in, it's the re- restoration of David's fallen tent. What he's saying is what, what David started in the old covenant is actually what the church is right now. You get that? So David sort of, I think he, he, he got more of a glimpse than we realized of what Jesus was going to do. And, and what was coming under the new covenant, though he wasn't actually living under it. But let's, let's actually look at the verse in Acts 15, because it's really profound. So Acts 15, 16 through 18. After this, so, so again, the, the, the context is uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and, and a bunch of, you know, sort of the early church are gathered, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Gentiles being saved, because up until that point, you know, it was for the Jew. And, you know, Jesus, he was the Jewish Messiah, the 12 disciples, they were all Jews. But now, after Pentecost, you see all these Gentiles coming in and they go, well, what, you know, what's happening? And James stands up and he quotes Amos 9:11, and he says this. He goes, look, guys, the prophets testify to this. They say, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. So he says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Why? Why, God, are you going to restore what David did, the tent where your glory was, where night and day worship happened, where people came and inquired of the Lord and sought your face? Why are you going to restore that? so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And James is going, what is happening with the early church is that. And it's because they, I mean, how was the early church birthed? At Pentecost, they're in an upper room. They're worshiping, seeking the Lord in the place of prayer. The Holy Spirit falls. They, they were doing the tabernacle of David right there. They were hosting the presence of God, worshiping, seeking him, and praying and, and probably singing. It doesn't say they're singing, but they probably were singing, and the Lord falls. 
And James gets it. He goes, this is what Amos was talking about, that the tabernacle of David is going to be restored, and essentially it's the church. And that's really profound. That, that, that ought to give us, as believers, a little bit more insight about what it means to be the church. It means we do what David did. It means we sing songs like David. It means we live like David where we seek the face of God. We pursue the one thing above everything else. And so the reestablishment of David's singing tent is what brings in the Gentile harvest. I mean, that is what James is saying here. The Gentiles are coming in. All of mankind is going to seek the Lord because God is establishing the tabernacle of David. And so this is, this is something that has instructed us for the, the last 15 years in our prayer room as we have built night and day prayer and we're coming up February 12th will be 15 years where it has been ceaseless live worship, either music and singing or just instrumental, sometimes big teams, sometimes just one person. But for 15 years, it's going on right now in room 23 upstairs, ceaseless. And we're not doing that only, and we're mostly not doing that so that people have a space to come. We're mostly doing that because we believe as we sing to Jesus, host his presence, prioritize him first in that place of worship and seeking his face, that then God's heart will move and God's hand will move and the activity of heaven will be empowered by heaven versus us trying to do the activity of heaven in our own strength. And that's what the tabernacle of David was. That's what the tent of David is. And singing is this kind of mysterious, you know, it's this mystical thing. It's like, it feels so weak and foolish. And so I've just been even dialoguing with the Lord about it this week going, okay, singing, I see how powerful it can be when it's in action, but why singing, you know? Like, why singing? And singing really is something that a person does when they're in a place of they're joyful, they're hopeful, and they're singing. And I think singing to Jesus is this acknowledgement that, you know, the song we were doing tonight, even though I'm surrounded, I'm actually going to fix my eyes on you. I'm going to sing to you because you're the one who has all the answers anyways. I'm not going to pretend like me trying to do anything is going to matter unless you tell me to do something. And so I'm just actually going to sit here and I'm going to sing love songs to you and trust that you're, you're going to work, work out the things around me. And so it's sort of, singing is like this humble, submitted, childlike thing that we offer to God. And, and it releases powerful things, because in our weakness, his strength is perfected. So, essentially what you could say is that the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28, go teach the nations about me, essentially. The great commission is actually unto David's tent being restored in the earth. And I know that sounds like, wait, huh? But why do we preach the gospel? We preach the gospel because we want people to come to salvation, yes. We want people to come to know Jesus and to be saved. But ultimately, we want Jesus to receive the worship that he's worthy of. And so John Piper says it this way. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. And so why do we send missionaries to places that have no access to the gospel? It's because in those places, not only do we not want those people to go to hell, that is true, and that's a good valid reason to go over there, 
but we also understand that Jesus purchased an inheritance from every nation and they are supposed to be singing to him and they're not singing to him in that place. And so I wanna go and I wanna raise up a worship movement in there. And what's required for people to worship and sing is that they actually come under the revelation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you to set you free from sin, but to actually bring you into his singing family. (laughs) You could say it that way. So you could say that the end of preaching the gospel is singing. (laughs) We preach the gospel because we want people to sing. And when people come to this place of singing, it's almost evidence that the gospel's taken root in their heart. I would say a Christian that doesn't sing with joy and hope in their heart is a Christian who hasn't fully grasped what the gospel has given to them and what has been offered to them in the gospel. I wanna share this story real quick. This is, I actually could not find the book to reread it, so I'm gonna give the best recollection of memory. Maybe, maybe Hazen could actually remember a little bit of the story for me with me, but it's this missionary biography about Gladys Allward, and she was a missionary in uh, this last century. I forget, what. do you remember what war she, she helped the orphans through? The Boxer Rebellion. And so she has like a hundred orphans that she has to help um, escape through the mountains in the middle of warfare. They're starving. I mean, they're literally dying and she ends up saving these hundred orphans by leaving, leading them through. And so just this really powerful missionary story, I recommend everybody read it. It's actually a really easy read. But at the end, the, t- to me, that's like amazing and profound. But one of, one of the most mind-boggling stories is near the end of the book, later in her life, she is with this missions organization and she hears these young uh, uh, you know, believers talking about wanting to go to an unreached people group. And I think it's Nepal, maybe. And they're trying to decide who should go, who should go. And she just hears it and the Lord drops it in her heart. And she steps in there and she goes, I'll go, who's coming with me? And so she grabs a team. I think it's like maybe two or three other people. And she's, you know, she's later in life. And so she goes trekking through to Nepal and, and sort of somewhere along the way, they get lost, I think is sort of what happens. And I think it's getting dark and the people who are traveling with her are kind of getting worried and they're trying to figure out what to do. And she goes, guys, just hang on, let's stop. Let's just sing. And so she leads them in singing a hymn. She's in this desperate situation, but she knows God's got it. I'm just going to sing to him. And she starts singing. <clears throat> and as they finish the song, it's either one or two uh, men start walking over the hill and they come down and meet them. And essentially they go, you must come with us. And she goes, this is the Lord. We have to go with these people. And they're like, okay, we don't know what's going on. So they go with these two people and they follow them. And I think it's like a long distance up a mountain and the person leads them to a a Buddhist temple. She walks in the Buddhist temple. They sit her in the front. They grab all the monks. It's like 30 or 40 Buddhist monks, something like that. And they sit on tree stumps and they say, you must teach us about the God who loves. And she's like, what? Okay, Okay, that's what I'm like made for. And so she like for eight hours a day for a week, teaches these Buddhist monks about Jesus, leads them to the Lord. And somewhere along the way, she asks them, she goes, what, like, why did you, why did you come and grab me? How do you know about the God who loves already? And, and how did this happen? 
And she said it was one of the craziest weeks of her life. And they tell her, they said years ago, like I think it's like a decade before this, they go, a missionary came and told us about the God who loves, and he gave us a passage of scripture. And I think either the, 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 like the track that they have got ripped or something, but it's like the, whatever they had was like a very short snippet of John or like First John or something that, that talked about the God who loves. And this missionary, um, he sang when he was with them, and, and ever since he left, there had never been another missionary that had come to them, but they said they knew. They go, we know that the people who belong to the God who loves sing. We know they sing, and so they heard her singing, and they went, she must be who we've been waiting for. The Lord has sent her to us, and they grab her. And it's just such this powerful story, this little missionary woman in a desperate situation, and she sings. And this is a real story. Like, this is in the last century. And I just go, how many times do I get in, and my wife can testify to this. She's got to call me so many times out of anxiety and like, why are you worrying about that? Let's pray. God's got us. Can't you remember the 50,000 times the Lord's come through? And I've just been going, as I'm preparing these notes, I'm going, man, Lord, I need to not just sing when I'm in the prayer room. I need like when I'm, when I'm trying to make a decision with my wife and I feel anxiety, I need to stop and go, hey, babe, let's just sing for a minute. Because when Gladys Allward sang, she led 40 Buddhist monks to the Lord. It's like, that's amazing. That's amazing. And we've got to recognize that it, it's not just that they heard her singing, but there are things moving in the heavenlies that the Lord orchestrated that they would be in the right place and she would be in the right place. And as she sang, they would heard it. They would hear it. And so just an amazing thing. So Malachi 1.11, it tells us that in every place, there's a day coming, it prophesies to us that in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to the Lord's name. In every place, what Gladys Allward did, that's gonna happen all over the world. <clears throat> and that, that's not happening currently right now. So we know that that's, that's still to be, to be fulfilled but we, as a people here, when we gather on Wednesday nights and we sing as joy leads us, or when we come to the prayer room throughout the week or when we come on Sunday morning, we're doing Malachi 111 because there was a time when incense wasn't being offered in Georgia. And, and we are doing that, and we also want to spread that incense to other places. We want other nations to sing. And so the incense is an interesting thing because um, in the Old Testament, and the tabernacle, the incense was used by the priests to actually be able to go into the presence of God. If they wanted to go into the Holy of Holies, they had to burn incense, and the cloud of incense allowed them to be in the presence of God and not be consumed, basically, by the all-consuming fire. And so if they didn't burn incense and they tried to go into his presence, they would have been, you know, destroyed. And so incense... In the book of Revelation, it tells us that prayer and worship together sort of are, are the like spiritual reality of what the incense of the Old Testament was representing. And so our, our singing and our praying is like spiritual incense that gets offered. And as it goes up into the air, it makes an atmosphere where, where man and God can meet together. And so just like in the story of Gladys Allward, she sings, she offers this incense, and it allows these Buddhist monks to actually become children of God. 
as we sing in this room, we've got to believe, we have to get in touch with what the Bible teaches us, that we're offering incense that's not, that's not only pleasing to the Lord, but it also creates an atmosphere where sinners can come and walk in this room and they can be in the presence of God and come under the blood of Jesus. So our singing, it creates a context for reconciliation where sinners can enter the Holy of Holies and encounter the love of Jesus. Now, they still have to make the decision. We can't make the decision for them, but we can create atmospheres where God can come and meet with man. And I believe that's what's happening with with the incense in that picture. And so the question becomes, what happens when Malachi 1.11 is fulfilled? What happens when the entire earth is filled with incense? Well, we know what happens. J- Jesus says it in a different way in Matthew 24, 14. He says the gospel is going to go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There will be a gospel witness in every single people group, and then the end will come, which indicates that's when I'm coming back. And Malachi 1.11 says it this way, when incense rises in every place. And so I believe as the incense rises and it fills the whole earth, That's when Jesus brings the Holy of Holies to us, to the earth. So Jesus will bring himself, his kingdom, the Holy of Holies, down to the earth and dwell there. His kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as the church sings, as the bride sings. All right, so let's look at Paul. You know, because we see David, he was a singer, but Paul also was a singer. We don't see him writing long psalms. We don't see him, you know, sort of managing and scheduling singers and musicians, but we do see him singing, and we see him singing in a dire situation. So let's look at it. Acts 16, 22 through 26. So the backdrop again is that Paul uh, is going through these towns and preaching the gospel, and as he's doing it, there's sort of this, you know, demonized fortune-telling girl who is, you know, harassing them. And, and he says, it actually says, I think it says it goes on for days. And he ends up, I, I, I think that it also says he gets annoyed with her and turns around and rebukes the demon out of her and the demon leaves and sort of ruins the fortune-telling business. And so the business owner of this, you know, girl who was his fortune teller is now irate that Paul has ruined his livelihood and he takes them, you know, to the to the judge and and that's where we pick up. So verse 22 it says the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So just, I mean, that description, there's so much detail about how awful that situation was. They were stripped. So imagine the embarrassment of being stripped naked and then beaten with rods. That's awful. Now, after being severely flogged, so it says it a second time, They're thrown into prison, and a guard is commanded, watch these men really closely. Give special attention to them. So he receives the order. So he puts them in the inner cell, which probably is worse than the outer cell, though I imagine all the cells are pretty awful, and fastens their feet in stocks. So they are in, under human terms, 
a very, very desperate situation. This is not a good situation. So what do Paul and Silas do? They do they have a little pity party and and claim, you know, that that oh woe is me, the world is awful. I mean, I would do that. All of us would probably do that. It's amazing what they do. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God, beaten, naked, feet in stocks, in the inner cell with the guard watching them, and they begin to sing. I mean, that's amazing. What, what, is, what does that show us about Paul? It shows us that Paul had like a real, solid, godly, biblical hope that his circumstances were not shaken by, and because of that hope on the inside, he begins singing in the midst of uh, an awful situation. And so what happens is they sing. Well, the other prisoners are listening to them. There's a little bit of a witness happening there. And then suddenly, and I love it when you see the word suddenly in Scripture. Usually there's some really cool things that follow after that. But suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So literally, Paul sings an earthquake onto the earth and breaks out of prison. Now, he doesn't leave. The jailer, you know, is about to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners are gone. And Paul ends up leading him to the Lord and his household. So it's an amazing story. I mean, if Paul wouldn't have sang that 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 jailer wouldn't have been brought to salvation the prison doors wouldn't have opened. You know, Paul might have stayed in prison, you know, that night and, and worse things could have happened. But instead he sings, he moves God's heart and God's hand moves on his behalf. And he literally splits open the prison for, for Paul. And, and, you know, there's, it's not just the earthquake that, that does this. There's supernatural things happening because everyone's chains come loose. Like the chains literally just fall off of them. It seems like what that's saying. So profound. So this is Paul. We're seeing this in the book of Acts, you know, a recounting of what sort of happened to Paul. But here in Colossians 3.16, we have Paul actually teaching us about singing. And I'm convinced, I was actually talking with uh, Billy earlier today about this, and, and he was sharing this thought that he is, he is convinced at this point that Paul really understood what David was doing with the tabernacle of David, because Paul says these things in these different places, and I'm going to try to communicate them, but he says these things where it's like, Paul, where did you get this from? And of course, Paul being a Pharisee would have known so much about the life of David, the tabernacle, and all that kind of stuff. But listen to this, Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So Paul puts equal weight of importance on teaching and singing. Just consider it. He says, as you teach and as you sing, it is imperative that the word of Christ is dwelling in you. He doesn't go, you know, the person who's teaching is more important than the person who's singing. And this is something that sort of, you know, I've, I've been grieved about uh, as a musician and just different environments where I see there's this, there's this standard or expectation that's put on pastors that's like, you need to be in the Word of God so you have something to teach. But singers and musicians, it's kind of like, 
well, you guys, as long as you do music, it's okay if you just talk about gear all day long or talk about your instruments or other things. But I go, no, 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 that's not what the, the Bible says. Paul says, teachers and singers, you must have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. You must devour the word. And the point here is he's saying that there are more than one ways that we actually get the word of God out. We get it through teaching and we get it through singing. And both of them equally depend on the word of Christ being in you. So you could say teaching is the great commission and singing is also the great commission. Check out this Psalm, Psalm 105, one and two. It says, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. And I believe one of the premier ways the church makes known to the world the works of God is through song. And just think about, you know, how, especially now, how you get, you have these songs that are erupting out of the worship movement that are full of biblical language, God-centered, singing to God. And, and, and there's the ability now to, to, you know, get a song in the presence of God, record it, and release it on the internet so that millions of people are able to engage with it like never before. And you, you can do that with teaching as well, but there's, there's something that happens when you hear a song where it sticks in your soul a little bit more than just spoken word. You know, it's, it's probably likely, those of you who were, who were here when Joy was leading, that you'll walk away maybe singing the melody of a song that she sang more than saying the words of what I'm saying to you right now. And, and so you, there's a power on that. And I, that's what I believe that Psalm is saying is that, that you know, we've got to teach the word and tell of God's wonderful deeds, but one way, and of course, it's actually a song that's telling us this, is to sing to the Lord. And I believe he's saying, sing of his marvelous deeds to the nations. Tell the nations of what he's done through song. And so I, I think there's a portion of the Great Commission that is to be completed that happens uh, with the gospel being communicated through song. I mean, it is happening. It's not like that's something that we can't prove already. But I just want to make the point that that simply teaching the word, um, or I should just say that that singing the word, singing the Bible, singing scripture, songs being released about the gospel, the return of Jesus, all those kinds of things, those are real ways that people can come into salvation. And many of us probably made decisions to follow Jesus in the context of worship. I know for me, like the encounters I had with God early on, I would hear a teaching and then in the place of worship, I would get on my face and weep with the Lord and, and make commitments to God and, you know, take my life. And, and he would encounter me with his love. And it was, it was like both the teaching of the word and the, the singing and the worship that would happen worked together. And I believe that's what Paul's after in that verse in Colossians. So look, let's look at this. This is Paul again in Romans, Romans 15, 8 through 13. He has just un, unpacked the gospel to the Gentile, to the Jew, uh, mercy and grace, and, and just you know these 14 chapters leading up to Romans 15, just profound things that Paul communicates. And then, and then he tells us this. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, 
that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. So what Paul's saying is Christ became a servant of the Jews so that Gentiles will sing, essentially. You could sort of put those three sentences together. Jesus became a servant to the Jews so that he can win the nations, so that the nations would sing to him. And he goes on, he says again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And then he prays this prayer that the God of hope would fill you uh, with joy and peace, that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so I want to include that last part because the, the point, the thing that I think is that the people who sing are the people who are filled with hope. And that's why he goes into praying for hope at the end because he realizes if I'm going to get them to sing, they really need to have hope inside of them, the hope of the gospel. And so what does it look like to overflow with hope? It looks like singing. <laughs> Again, consider Paul. He's in prison. He's so rooted in the hope of the gospel. Jesus has got me. Even if I die, I'm going to go be with him in glory. He's coming back. He's going he's gonna to set all the wrong things right. That's all inside of him. I just got beaten, but I know it's reward. It's more reward for me. These are light and momentary afflictions. There's a resurrection coming. And that hope boils up inside of him. He goes, Silas, we got to sing. Silas is like, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling pain in my body. But Paul's going, I got hope and I want to sing. And so I think what it looks like to overflow with hope is singing. Singing is the language of the hopeful. When a people sing to the Lord in spirit and truth, it is evidence that the gospel of hope has taken root in their hearts. All right. So we looked at David, we looked at Paul, let's look at Jesus. So Jesus sang. I mean, Zephaniah, Jesus is God. So when Jephaniah, Zephaniah 3.17 says, or 3.19, says uh, that God sings and dances over us, that's Jesus. Jesus sings and dances. He's the son of David. He's from David's lineage, you know. His great, 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 great grandfather was a psalmist and a songwriter. And, and so Jesus, I believe, has it in his blood. Even though we don't see him playing instruments, we do see one little story, one little kind of get snuck in there moment where he sings. Um, and it's in Mark 14. Actually, before I get there, let me just say this. Jesus tells us in John 4, and I mentioned this last week, I love this verse. Um, I don't even know if Hazen remembers this, but this was a Bible study that I was doing with Hazen years ago. And Hazen, you're the one who actually shared this thought, and it stuck with me, that Jesus in John 4 tells us that the Father desires those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And it's so powerful that we get to see the, the depths of God's heart, that he would vulnerably reveal to us what he deeply desires. And what he desires it's those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I hear that, I go, man, Lord, I want to fulfill your desire. You know, his desire is not to have a bunch of busy, successful, whatever, you know, religious children. His desire is that people would connect with him 
in spirit, in their inner man, they would love him. From their hearts, they would love him, and in truth. They would know who he is. They wouldn't worship him as Allah, or as Buddha, or as Krishna, or as some false deity, but they would worship him as Jesus, who he has revealed himself to be. And that's what God desires. And you know, Jesus, he corrected the Pharisees. He rebuked the Pharisees for this, that their worship was, was outward and not inward. It was, they were whitewashed tombs, clean looking on the outside, but dead on the inside. And the father goes, no, 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 that's not what I want. I don't care about how you look on the outside. I want the inside. I want spirit and I want truth. And so Jesus tells us this. And again, one way we worship is through singing. And so let's look at this. Mark 14, 24 through 16. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is giving the wine and he's bringing up the new covenant. He says this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew in the kingdom of God. And then it says, Here's, here's the sort of sneaky ninja verse that you could miss if you're not paying attention. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, what was that like to sing a hymn with Jesus? I don't know. Hopefully we'll get to, I mean, there one day we're going to get to sing with Jesus, but that must have been a fun moment. I want to just, re- reading this, uh, these, these couple verses here um, again this week, there's sort of like this sequence that happens here. Jesus introduces the new covenant. You know, they sing a hymn, but, you know, before they sing the hymn, he says, hey, I'm coming back, but I'm not drinking the wine again uh, until I'm in my father's kingdom. And so he mentions his first coming and the new covenant that he's establishing right there. They sing, and and he's he also includes this second coming. And this immediately reminded me of Isaiah 42, which is um, one of my favorite places with singing. And you sort of see the sequence. You see the first coming of Jesus, you see singing, and you see the second coming of Jesus. And so I want to jump into that. So Isaiah 42, I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you, but um, just hang with me. So Isaiah 42, the first nine verses are about the first coming of Jesus, okay? He's called the servant. He's going to bring justice. He says he won't shout or cry out. Uh, he's not going to raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He won't become discouraged until he establishes justice. And then it says later on, verse 6, he says, um, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, that's us, to open the eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then it says um, in verse 9, it says, See, the former things have taken place, new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So this is clearly the new covenant. Isaiah saw it in such a profound way. And he goes, there's a servant coming who's going to bring justice, but he's not going to raise his voice, and he's, he's going to be tender with people. He's not going to break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick, um, and it's going to be a covenant that's going to bring in the Gentiles, and it's going to be new things. I mean, we all get that language 
That language shows up throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. So this is clearly the first coming of Jesus. So what comes right after that? Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all you who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. So what is Isaiah prophesying? He's going, guys, there's a day coming, a servant sent by the Lord, anointed to bring justice. He's going to bring in a new covenant. It's going to be new things. Former things are going to pass. And what are you going to do with it? What's the command of God when that new covenant comes? Sing. All the earth, sing. You islands everywhere, sing. Sing to the Lord. And so what happens when we, the church, those who are under the new covenant, what happens when we obey this and we sing to the Lord? Verse 13, the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. What was going on with Jehoshaphat when he had singers in the front of his army and God defeated the enemy for him? God was testifying to what's coming in the future for the entire earth. What happened when David was singing over Saul and the demon was leaving Saul? What's happening is, is what's going to happen when the church sings. We're going to sing and, and the entire kingdom of darkness is going to leave the earth as Jesus comes back. Our singing literally stirs up the heart of Jesus like a mighty man of war, and he comes back to a singing bride. And look at this. This is so clearly his second coming, and we get to see the distinction between the two because in the first, he doesn't raise his voice, right? He doesn't shout aloud. But in the second, right here in verse 13, it says he will shout. He will raise a battle cry. He came at the first coming as a humble servant, as the suffering servant, as the lamb, but he's coming back as the roaring lion, and he will remove the kingdom of darkness from the earth once and for all. And the singing bride is what pulls on his heart, you know, when the entire earth is going Jesus. You know, it's, it's, you could think of it this way, when there's a delegate from each nation who has pledged allegiance to Jesus as their king, and they go, we want you, we want you to be our king, come back. And they sing songs to him. It stirs his heart up and like a mighty man, he returns. So when the nations do verses 10 through 12 and sing to Jesus, he will return and do verse 13. When we sing now, his spirit moves and he routes the enemy in small ways. But a day is coming when the singing bride will beckon his return and he will drive the enemy from the earth. Jesus returns like a mighty warrior for his singing bride. All right. So I want to close with um, uh, just a couple of chapters from the book of Revelation, but I'm just going to summarize them, so don't worry. <laughs> this is just so cool. And the Lord was just touching me with these verses. I've been doing a Bible study through the book of Revelation over the last, I don't know, six months, just with some friends going through each chapter, reading verse by verse. And so I just happened to be in these chapters while I was putting these notes together, and I just felt like the Lord was 
was on this. And so in light of the Lord's return that I was just talking about, you know, just sort of keep that in the backdrop. So Revelation 13 is, to me, one of the most intense chapters in the Bible because it talks about the Antichrist and the false prophet and this intense persecution that comes on the earth that, that believers must endure and suffer through. And the chapter, you know, you read it and you kind of go, well, man, I hope I'm not around for that. But there will be a church that's around for that, whether it's us, our children, our children's children, that, that day's coming. And so we need to read that and we need to be instructed by it. We need to seek the Lord. And so you kind of finish chapter 13, you go, okay, Lord, this is bad. What's, what's your answer? And Revelation 14 starts and John says, I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, let's not get into who all the 144,000 are. I'm not, I'm not going to point that out. But for the purpose of this, look at this next verse. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. So what is God's answer to the terror of Revelation 13? He's got some singers. That's what he's got. The, the Antichrist is coming on the earth. Darkness and deception is going to uh, increase. And what is God's answer? Well, the lamb is standing on a mountain with some singers. And you go, okay, Lord, are you sure? Do we, is there anything else? Is there something behind these singers? And so we read chapter 13, and Jesus essentially says, don't worry, I have singers. <laughs> but what you see after uh, the singing, the 144,000 singing the new song, is you see these four things. You see the gospel go forth uh, and angelic assistance. You see Babylon fall. You see this divine warning against the mark of the beast and ultimately the great harvest of the earth. Um, and then following that, you, you go right into chapter 15, okay? In chapter 15, you see these angels who are given the bowls of wrath, which are the, the, the wrath of God to be poured out. And so you see that, and then John sees this. And this is the point I want to make. He says, I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing on the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. All right. So imagine, so let's just, let's take, take, take in this whole scenario. Okay, by the time we get to Revelation 15, these believers who we see on the sea of glass, this is, this is after uh, the rapture has happened. They've been caught up and they're on the sea of glass and they've just come from the great tribulation where there has been the most intense suffering and challenge the earth has ever seen. And they stand on the sea of glass and Jesus is like, are you ready? We're about to go and actually take the earth once and for all. We're going to set up my kingdom on the earth. And they go, okay, give me a sword, give me a shield, give me some bows and arrows. And he goes, no, my father's got something for you. And God goes, here's a harp and maybe a chord chart. <laughs> it's like, huh? We're going to play harps? He goes, yeah, you remember that story with Jehoshaphat? He put singers in front of generals, and I, and I laid waste the enemy. 
And that's what's going to happen in the end of the age. God is going to use in conjunction with Jesus coming back and judging the nations. We are going to be singing and worshiping. Look at this psalm, Psalm 149. It says, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. All right, so we got music, tambourine, harps, dancing, singing. And then he says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind the kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. That's intense. Singing, music, dancing, harps, and right, right next to that, juxtaposed to all of that, which is a very joyful thing, is the judging of the nations. And then it closes with this. This is the glory of all the saints. That's us. He's saying the glory of the saints is that we would sing with joy and worship God and trust him as judge. And as we sing, he releases his judgments. He removes darkness from the earth. And again, this can feel weighty and like, well, I don't want to be singing and dancing while, while you know, people are being judged by God. But in the end of the day, we have to look, you know, um, we have to consider the darkness that's on the earth. We've got to consider the sex slave trade, you know, the, the, uh, the problems in the Middle East with radical Islam, North Korea, all these places where oppression, you know, people starving, uh, unclean drinking water, pandemics. You know, there's evil on the earth that must be dealt with. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to remove all of that. And that's going to be a glorious, beautiful, joyful, dancing, singing kind of moment. And so scripture shows us that the people of God will be a singing bride. And when we sing, we move his heart and we move his hands. And ultimately the bride is going to sing Jesus right back to the earth and he's gonna set up his kingdom. And so we see David, he plays his harp and the demon from Saul is driven away. In the end, when the entire company of the redeemed plays their harps, Satan and his hordes will be driven from the earth. So I want us as a people, myself, I want to believe this more. I was believing this more this week as I was looking at these things that, man, it matters when I open my, vo when I open my mouth and sing. You know, you don't have to be on the platform to, to move heaven through your singing. It is so important. The reason why we have this, you know, uh, LCD screen back here with lyrics that go up is because we want everybody to sing. You know, the worship team up here is leading us in singing so that we as the company of redeemed that gather together, as we sing, we do the things that happened. As we sing, God does the things that happened when Jehoshaphat sang, when David played his harp, when Paul sang, and ultimately the church at the end of the age, this is what's going to happen. And so um, I want to, uh, yeah, I want to, let's just, let's just stand. I want to pray for us that God would, put hope in joy. We would look to that day where, where the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. 
we would look to the, the past and the testimony of our own life and what God has set us free from, and we would be a people who sing. So Lord, we just come before you right now. We thank you, Jesus, for the hope of the gospel, the good news that not only did you set us free from sin, but you are going to set the world free from the kingdom of darkness. And we have a song to sing, the new song of the Lord, that you have declared new things, that there is a day coming where everything will be restored. And so I just pray, Lord, you would help us to be a people who sing. No matter our skill in singing, Lord, I pray that we would be a people by faith, like David, we would prioritize this place of, of being with you and singing love songs to you, Lord. I pray, fill our hearts with, with passion for you. Let us see your beauty in, in a way that causes singing to erupt out of us. Lord, I pray for those in this room who might be called to be worship leaders or to sing in our prayer room or to, to sing in the nations. I just pray, Lord, you would, you would uh, sharpen that gift. You would train their voice, Lord. I pray you'd fill them with the word of the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in them richly. And Lord, for the rest of us who uh, just you know sing in the shower or sing in our car on the way to work, Lord, I just pray we would... Uh, be given a gift of faith in this place, Lord, that we would gather our families together and, and find times to sing to you, Jesus, and in faith believe that heaven moves, Lord, that when we have challenging situations, Lord, like Paul in prison, anything from the, the car that breaks down to being beaten and thrown in prison, Lord, that we would be a people who would stop, acknowledge you in our ways, and we would sing to you, Jesus trusting that you have all things in your hands, Lord. I just, Lord, I thank you even that, that the command to sing is this beautiful kind of benevolent command because singing is so joyful. Just shows us what kind of king you are, Lord. You're a joyful king. You like music. You like to dance. You like to sing, Lord. So I pray, Lord, help us as a, as a community, Lord, to be people who sing, that we would sing the gospel to each other. As we teach the gospel to each other, we would sing it. We would sing it to our children. Our children would sing it, and it would move heaven, would move earth. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.